Good morning, everybody. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. Good morning, everyone. Much better, much better. I haven't been up here in quite some time. I'm so happy to be back up here with you, continuing on in our series in Luke. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Stephen Atherton. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am really excited this morning. I'm just excited to be able to dive back into the Word with all of you, getting back into Luke. So fear is a fascinating thing. It's fascinating because it can push each of us in different directions to do different things. There's something I'm sure majority of you have heard. It's called the fight or flight response. Fight or flight. And in between services, someone told me there's actually three. It's fight, flight, or freeze. So just, just clarification. There are three. I'm only using two this morning. So basically, this idea regarding fear is that in a scary situation or where fear is in play, people will either fight or they'll run. No matter who you are, you have a response to fear. And there are a million different scenarios that play out in our lives that trigger this. So I have a problem. I have to confess to you all, I have a problem. And I know that this problem is going to get me in trouble someday. I just, I can guarantee it, hasn't yet, but eventually I just know it's coming. I have a real problem when someone scares me. Now, you might be like, wow, thanks, Stephen. That was a cliffhanger. Like, we thought something was crazy was coming out. No, sorry. I had to make it, I had to build it up a little bit. But it is a problem of mine, and it's because of my response. I feel like a normal person, someone says boo, and it's like, oh, wow, that was fun. But I go the opposite direction. In this type of scenario, the flight kind of takes a back seat to the fight. I'll give you a couple examples of this. So for most of you, you know that the pastors of the whole network, every year we get together and we go to something called the huddle. And it's just an opportunity for all of us to, to really, you know, get to know each other and, and open the word. But while we were there at this nice hotel in Colorado Springs, the elevators decided that they didn't want to work. So there's a whole line of people standing out there waiting for the elevators. And I was like, no, I, I'm going to go find the staircase, right? That's the logical thing to do. So I asked this old lady, who was like, hey, where are the stairs? And she like cryptically pointed to a dark corner, you know, light bulbs flickering. I'm like, oh, cool. All right. So I wander back over there, find the door, open the door. And as soon as I open it, there's an employee standing face to face with me right there. And my response wasn't, ah, my response was, I went like this on the guy. And it was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's just, that's just my response. I'm really sorry. Please don't sue me. I didn't punch him, so that was really good. Another example of this was recently my parents were in town, and we were playing hide and seek in the dark. And now, mind you, I had just had abdominal surgery, so I'm trying to take it easy. We're all hiding in little, you know, corners under blankets. It was whatever. Well, we couldn't find my dad anywhere. He's really good at hiding. And so we couldn't find him. We're like, dad, just come on out. And he wouldn't come out. And so I was like, okay, I'll just go downstairs and find him. So I opened the basement door and my dad's standing right there and he jumps out and yells at me. So that wasn't great for a couple of reasons because one, I go like this, but also my stomach felt like it was ripping out. So I was like, oh no, I didn't know what to do. But either way, that was my response. It's not great. So in moments of fear in regards to being scared, I fight instead of flight. But now sometimes I have a problem going the opposite direction when it comes to different types of scenarios. There's been times sadly in my life that I've had an opportunity presented 
I could share the gospel with someone and I just clammed up. I didn't say anything because I was worried about the potential social repercussions. I failed to point things out in others' lives. I knew they needed to hear to love them as a good brother in Christ. And I didn't because I was fearful of their response. I was fearful of losing a friend. I've needed help so desperately at times in my life and I refused to ask because I was afraid that I would be seen as weak. We all respond differently to fear. And this morning we're going to walk through, as we walk through this passage in Luke, we get the opportunity to take a look at our own lives. We get the opportunity to look at what we fear and how we fear. We're going to see through this passage that without a proper fear of God in our lives, we will fail to stand up for him, acknowledge him, speak up for him, and fail to trust him. We have the opportunity to search the depths of our hearts and see what it is in life we truly fear and what our responses are to it. So in the next few verses, we're gonna see four points emerge, four points. Number one, it'll be up on the screen. There you go. Fear God, not man. We're gonna see that in verses four through seven. Number two is fear God, acknowledge him, eight through 10. Fear God, he will provide, 11 through 12. And fear God in our pursuits and our drive, 1321. Not man, acknowledge him, he will provide pursuits and drive. And from these verses, I pray we will leave here today desiring to, even as imperfectly as it might be, fear him, acknowledge him, and trust him. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today so thankful and grateful that we can gather and worship you. God, I pray that this morning as we dig into this passage, as we dig into this idea of fear and what it should look like, God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to not only see you more clearly, but desire to fear you in our lives, knowing who you truly are. God, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. As you heard Colton read just a moment ago, we're continuing on a Luke Verses, or chapter 12, verses 4 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in front of you. I'll be honest, I have no idea what page number he said. So whatever page number Luke is, 12, 4, 21, that's the, that's the page. And this right here, this is right on the heels of Jesus proclaiming the woes on the Pharisees and the scribes. And as Chad said yesterday, those scribes are actually the lawyers of the time. So in this, he hits every angle. Jesus points out to these Pharisees and these scribes the ways that they've been wicked and vile, the ways that they have lied and deceived people, and even how they're leading people to the grave with their false view of the law of God, and more specifically in these passages of holiness. So immediately after proclaiming these things to them, Jesus turns to the crowd of thousands of people. And it says in 12.1, there were so many people, they were trampling each other. That's a lot of people. And he warns them 
of the hypocrisy of these Pharisees. He warns them of the leaven that they produce that spreads with the reminder at the end that God is the ultimate judge who will bring all of the hidden things to light. Which takes us to our passage today. Verse four says this. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. So in typical Jesus fashion, it seems as he starts this, he does something he's done so many times before when teaching where he is directly talking to the crowd as we saw in the first part of 12. But then he shifts the way that he's talking. He shifts it by saying, my friends, my friends, which is a really good indicator that he now turns his attention directly to the disciples because he wants to share something really important with them. With a reminder though, that the entire crowd can still hear exactly what he's saying. So it's important again, that we keep context of these verses in the back of our minds Jesus declares the woes on the Pharisees, addresses the crowd, talks about that how they are like leaven, taking us to the first point, fear God, not man. Verse four, again, continuing on, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So after talking about these people, who they are, what they've done, being aware of them, Jesus says, don't fear those that can kill the body. I don't know about you, but I feel like that, that would have been a jarring statement. <laughs> Jesus is having this conversation where the disciples are probably like, yeah, okay. That's what's up, Jesus. You tell those Pharisees, you tell those scribes, evil, vile people. Yeah, we hear you, Jesus. They're all like leaven and stuff. And then he looks at them and says, don't be afraid of these people that can and will try to kill you. If that doesn't shift the mood, I don't know what does. But this is an immediate call out. After everything Jesus just said, this is an immediate call out that the faithful followers of Jesus will be persecuted even to the point of death by those who oppose them. So there's been several times so far that the Pharisees openly opposed Jesus, including recently, really recent, in 1153, the heat is starting to turn up in ministry. It says, as he went away from there, right after he declared the woes, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So because of these things, it's pretty fair to think that the disciples felt the stress and the anxiety leading up to the crucifixion as they're looking around and they're seeing this opposition from religious leaders, it's, it's almost like they could see the writing on the wall that this was going south really fast. These men that could not only hurt them, but kill them for opposing what they say and think. So Jesus is taking the time here to help the disciples put fear into perspective. Jesus knew that they needed a reminder. And this is a really difficult truth to swallow, but it's a reminder that's needed. All persecutors can do is kill. Physical death. But physical death cannot affect the believer's ultimate 
destiny. Persecutors can only harm the body. Yeah, these, these Pharisees might try to kill you for opposing them. The people in this crowd are going to turn on you. The entirety of humanity at some point might turn on you because of what you believe. But stay strong. Cling to your faith you know holds you together because even if they hurt you, beat you, or kill you, they can never take away your salvation. They can never take away the truth that you will spend eternity with your creator, God that has the ultimate power over life and death. It's one we get to spend eternity with. We shouldn't fear our persecutors, but there's a caveat here. Fear God. This fear here is not like watching a scary movie, but the ultimate respect of the supreme and awesome power of the God of the universe, the God of all creation, who was and is and is to come, it is a proper view of who he is and what he can do. In this, Jesus isn't just saying, okay, everybody, listen, don't fear man, change your response to people, the end. He's saying fully change your perspective. Don't fear man who can only destroy the body. Fear God who can destroy it all. This God who has authority over death and hell, the one who has authority, have a healthy respect of God that makes us more concerned with obeying him than any man and what they can do. I'm sure you've heard this before, but I love it. In the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a novel by C.S. Lewis. There's a scene where the youngest sister, Lucy, is asking a question about Aslan the lion. Mrs. Beaver responds, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Like I said, I'm sure you've heard it, but I always feel like it's worth repeating when talking about fearing the one true God. He is so powerful and mighty. He is great. Is, is he safe? Of course not, but he's good. He's the king that we deserve, that, that he deserves that we live for and give our lives for if the time were come, if the time were to come. Famous preacher once said, a man has but one life to lose and one soul to save and it is madness to sacrifice the salvation of the soul to the preservation of the life. Fear God, not man. Even though it's not seen much today in the US, there's a very real persecution happening across the world. There's a very real persecution for the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus that sacrificed everything for us. Christians every day in other places face this. They need to be reminded of this because death can be looming at any point. And here in a few verses, we're going to see Jesus take a step back from the extreme of death to acknowledging him before men, but he throws out the big guns first here. Don't fear death, even if persecuted stand for what you believe. In the Middle East, Christians are consistently being murdered for their faith. 
and these believers knowing full and well that their faith will probably get them killed, they continue to stand firm. Terrorists are marking homes, they're marking properties, they're marking places they go with an Arabic letter N. So they know who to kill. And it stands for Nazarene or follower of the Nazarene, which is Jesus. And you know, when, when talking about this, I don't hear stories of these Christians scrubbing that letter off, running away from the mark, but standing firm, fearing God over man, no matter the cost. So I have a question. It's extreme, but still possible. If Windsor, Colorado was overrun with Christian-hating terrorists who were killing people left and right for their faith. And one fateful day, the gun was turned at you. And the question was asked, do you believe in Jesus? What would you say? Truly, think about it. What would you say? This Jesus that we talk about every week that saves and restores and brings back to life, how much do you truly believe in him and fear him over men? Do we fear God or men? So knowing how difficult this would have been for them and honestly, even for us to process, I believe Jesus in his kindness adds these next verses right on the heels of this really intense topic to remind them of another way to see this God that we fear and why we should fear him and how we should respond. That he is a God who truly cares. Verse six, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Not one of them is forgotten before God. If God remembers the sparrows, he in no way, shape or form will forget you. To the disciples then, to us now, this should be an incredible encouragement that even though persecution may come, even though the world may come down on us for the truths that we cling to, we are never lost or forgotten. Our creator sees us, he knows us, so don't lose heart. I feel like there are a few things worse than the sense of being forgotten. And Jesus assures every believer that their life is precious and remembered before God. Jesus doesn't stop there though. He continues on in, this, uh, in this verse, these verses of encouragement in verse seven. Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Not only does God know you, not only does he see you and care for you, he intimately knows you. He loves you so deeply and cares about every detail of our lives to the point of knowing every single strand of hair on our heads. For Chase, it's not that many, but he still knows them. In the context here, we know that this is in reference to those being persecuted for their faith that there's a feeling of worthlessness and no one caring for them as they're dealing with these persecution. Yet this is a reminder that there's a loving God in heaven who values each and every one. Now, I think this can also ring true in other areas in our lives as well. As we go through a really difficult trial, 
Our marriage is falling apart. A, a child is sick. We have wayward children, families who don't care. You name it. And I believe in these times, in each of our lives, we can feel worthless, hopeless for God. Even asking the question, where are you, God? Don't you care? I think this passage is a beautiful reminder that in persecution and pain and trials, we have a God that does care. A God more powerful than anything that we are to fear who has ultimate control, but cares. We fear him because he is overall, in all, through all, but he loves us intimately. He cares about his children. It's another reason we fear and honor him. We started off with fearing God, not man, four through seven, with our second point being brought to the surface here. Next verses of Fearing God by acknowledging him, verses eight through 10. He continues in verse eight. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before the angels. So right after comforting the disciples and in turn comforting us, Jesus states that those who will speak his name those who will stand up for him, those who will who proclaim the truth of their faith in the face of persecution, these individuals will be acknowledged, as it says, before the angels. Now, this is a really cool line right here because the people then would have automatically known that Jesus wasn't just talking about angels. This is actually referencing the throne of God surrounded by angels changes the verse in a powerful way because Jesus is saying those that acknowledge him before men, not fearing men, fearing God, he will acknowledge before God, the father in front of his throne. This is another example of, as we've been saying, not fearing man, but God, just with, just with a little detail switched up of just not dying in the process. It just takes it one step. This is proclaiming Jesus, knowing people might disagree. Knowing it might change your social status. People might not talk to you anymore. There might be a social chasm for you because of your representation of Christ. For them then, social structure was a big deal. If you were banished or excommunicated, even shunned for any reason, it was almost like a social death sentence. You weren't welcome. You weren't wanted. You were officially an outcast. This is what people at the time faced when proclaiming Jesus. As the religious leaders and eventually the people would see what they were saying as heresy which would result in death, as we saw in the first verses, or in these being a social pariah. So I take it back to us again, Windsor, Colorado. We live in a pretty safe place. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of controversy. Comfortability reigns. What about us? What about places like here, where persecution is minimal for the name of Jesus? I would say this passage means just as much to us. 
What if you're in a room? Standing in a room with a bunch of coworkers and friends. You're having a great old time. It's a wonderful party. And someone, for whatever reason, calls you out in front of everyone that you're a Christian. Knowing full and well that the rest of the room probably disagrees in what you believe. So the record stops. You hear the crickets start chirping in the background. What do you say? What do you say? If you were in that position, how do you respond? Do you stand up for your faith, defending the one true king, fearing him over men? Or do you deny? Do you clam up, worried more about people than God? Like I said at the beginning, I failed at this times in my life. I've failed to stand up and speak when I should have. I've let the fear of man trump my fear of God, but by God's grace, even in my failure, he still loves me and cares for me. Even in our failure, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are saved and every day is a new day to trust in the Lord and to fear him. Ways to do this is, I mean, just opening his word to better know him and the reason we desire to fear him. Remember why we fear him. Why are we standing up for him? Seek him in prayer to build that relationship. Because in that, that pushes us even further to want to live for him and fear him and desire to better represent him moving forward. No matter the persecution that may come, desiring to truly honor him. But what about the person that refuses to acknowledge him? Jesus takes it to the next level with verse nine. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So I wanna clarify this as we get going. This verse is not a condemnation to the believer who, when push comes to shove, fails in a moment of weakness. This is not a verse that propagates the loss of salvation. This verse is a clear and concise breakdown of the non-believer denying Jesus before men. When, when someone fully denies Jesus before men with a hardened heart and a complete lack of faith, or in this case, no faith. This is saying that Jesus before the throne of God, as we talked about with the angels, before the throne of God will not acknowledge that person. I feel like looking at the juxtaposition of both of these, you have the person that acknowledges him and he acknowledges him before God and the person that denies him completely. I love the story of Peter. The story of Peter is great because Peter loves Jesus. If you look throughout scripture, Peter loves him desperately. But there's one point, we're gonna see it later on, where Jesus tells Peter, you will deny me three times. You will, you'll do it. And Peter's like, no way, I'll never do that. Why would I ever, I love you so much, why would I ever do that? He's like, no, you'll do it. The time comes, someone walks up to Peter and says, hey, you were with that guy. He's like, no, I wasn't. Whoa, why would you ever think that? Person number two, hey, man, no, I promise you, I, I deny him, I was not with him. Number three is even more intense. Not only did he say, I don't know him, he actually cursed and said, I don't know the man. It's pretty intense, right? That's loss of salvation worthy, right? 
yeah, that makes sense. Denying Jesus three times like that, he's, he's done. He's over with. Jesus will not acknowledge him before men. Wrong, or before God, excuse me. God knows the true posture of our hearts. If we fail in a moment of weakness or if our hearts are hard against him, those are the two different things. Verse 10. Jesus now takes it to what it looks like to talk badly about him. It's almost like a slow progression down. And not saying it's not English, but verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So I believe this is another beautiful truth sandwich Jesus is giving us. He goes from fear God, not man, to I care about you so much, to fear God by acknowledging me, then this line of forgiveness, that even if you talk incorrectly about Jesus, there is forgiveness. This is showing his grace and mercy to us broken sinners, knowing that is again the posture of our heart. So I guarantee if I went around this room and I did a survey, there was at least one time in each of our lives, even as a professing believer, that we failed to properly acknowledge Jesus, properly stand up for our faith, and maybe even talk badly about him, worried about our peers, even trying to get out of conversations by just going along with the terrible things that people are saying about him. And the beauty is that in each of these mistakes, we're forgiven if we have professed him as savior. If we have put our faith and trust in him who paid the ultimate price on the cross, he stands in front of us in the throne room and acknowledges that we are his. Those that don't acknowledge, those that deny him, which ties into the next verse, is the unforgivable sin, which is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. This small little verse has caused so much controversy over the years. It's been misused, misquoted, misinterpreted, and from that massively misunderstood. People have even built entire doctrines off of this verse, claiming believers can lose salvation. So when I was a kid, I remember thinking about this verse a lot. It's one of those things that you read it, you hear it. I went to a Christian school growing up, and they're like... The, unfor the unforgivable sin, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I'm like, what does that mean though? And so I would think in my head, okay, well, I said God's name in vain once. Is that, is that blaspheming the Holy Spirit? So am I going to hell now? Oh, wait, hold on. So, so if, I, if I, I did the wrong thing this one time, is that blaspheming the Holy Spirit? And then even I got to the point, there was times I thought because I was thinking about it in my head that I used the phrase blaspheming the Holy Spirit in my head, I was done. That's it. I'm done, the, the flames of hell have cooked me over. I'm well done, that's it. That might sound silly, but I would almost guarantee some of you have experienced that same thing over verses like this. See Tyler Bond laughing back there. Thanks buddy, appreciate that. We talk all the time about the truth of the gospel. The truth that it's only by Jesus and through Jesus salvation comes. 
There's no way to the Father but through him. So if this is the case, then what is the thing that would be unforgivable in this life? And that would be a rejection of God's truth. Any person that end, at the end of their lives that refuses Jesus, refuses the gospel message, and has fully hardened their heart to God has committed this ultimate sin. Anyone that dies without Jesus as their savior is guilty of this. And therefore, as scripture states, without Jesus, rejecting Jesus, the consequences in eternity without him in hell. This, my friends, is the truth of the unforgivable sin, a full and complete rejection of God until the day someone dies. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, not because it's a sin too big for God to forgive, but because it's an attitude of the heart that cares nothing for God's forgiveness. The way to not blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to put your loving, to put your, your trust upon him today. Takes us to our third point. Fear God, he will provide. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I just recently had a conversation with a guy who was explaining to me that he didn't know how to talk to people about his faith. And therefore, since he didn't know and didn't feel prepared to do it, he wasn't going to do it. Like, I, I'm, I'm so concerned about messing this up. I'm so concerned that I'm going to say the wrong thing and that person is going to hightail it towards Satan or whatever, that I'm not gonna say anything. Someone else will say it eventually, right? He's not the first person I've heard say this. I actually hear people say it all the time. They don't wanna share the gospel or talk about the Bible with their friends because they'll mess it up. And obviously this has been the case for humanity for thousands of years since Jesus is taking the time in this section on fearing God and addressing it. Jesus' disciples then and us today can trust that no matter how skilled or unskilled we are in the word, the Holy Spirit who lives in every believer will speak through you. This doesn't mean you shouldn't strive to understand scripture and what God has to say. It doesn't mean never read your Bible and poof, there it is. It's saying that through the Holy Spirit, the things that need to be said will be said. When persecution comes, when you're placed before the assembly to proclaim your faith, you will have everything that you need. We are all desperately in need of Lord. We all desperately need him. We are not able to do this life without him. We need the Holy Spirit to speak through us. Something I thought was pretty cool as I studied this is that the phrase, what you should say, or in other translations, what you should answer is the Greek word apologiame, meaning to make an adequate defense or answer, which is where we get the term apologetics from. It's what we use today as the study of teaching uh, and, and the ways of defending your faith. 
So as we're put in a place to defend our faith, to share the gospel, to acknowledge him, proclaim him, we will be given the words to say. Church, it's not about what you think you have to say. It's simply about opening your mouth and letting God do the work. Then out of nowhere in this, Jesus is having this intense conversation about fearing God, not man, acknowledging him, he will provide. Then out of nowhere, some random guy in the crowd, he yells out to Jesus, taking us to our fourth and final point. Fearing God in our pursuits and our drive. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So according to the old law, the oldest brother received two thirds of the inheritance and the younger brother received one third. So in this, it actually doesn't really matter because we don't know the circumstances. We don't understand what this dispute with his brother was about. We don't know why, when, where, how. We know nothing except that this man wants what he wants when he wants it and expects Jesus to give it to him. This man, he didn't ask Jesus to listen to both sides and make a righteous judgment. He asked Jesus to take sides with him against his brother. And obviously everything Jesus said up to this point did not sink in with this guy. Fearing God, knowing God loves his people, God will provide for his people. He loves us more than the sparrows and provides. Nope. This guy came to see Jesus for one thing and one thing only, what he thought he deserved. His pursuits and his drive were for himself, not for God. Being rich in God not in our possessions is the key here. Striving and driving for God, not things. It wasn't that Jesus is unconcerned about justice here, but he knew the man's heart. Knowing his covetousness and lack of fear of God, Jesus used this man's random yelling from the back of the crowd as a teaching opportunity to speak to him and the crowd about covetousness and in this, his lack of fear for the one true God and his improper ideals of gain. 16 through 21. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he went and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The man Jesus' parable was blessed with fertile ground. And from what we can see, it seems he's pretty successful in this. He was so successful that he had trouble managing his resources, apparently. Because he had too many crops. Must be nice, right? Having too many crops? Or is it? The guy wasn't just asking the question, what shall I do for fun? He was actually so concerned about his stuff that he was anxious about what to do with it. 
with all the resources he could ever mean, uh, that he could ever need, the man in the parable had his life confidently planned out. He would build more to better manage his wealth and then enjoy life to the fullest. However, one night, all the man's accomplishments and plans were ruined. He made business plans and life plans, but couldn't control the day of his death. And then all of his accomplishments and plans were instantly nothing. The man, as it says in the passage, was a fool. Not because he was rich, but because he lived without any awareness and preparation for eternity. He lived with no fear of God in his preparation and drive. This man owed his life, his livelihood, and his wealth to God. But throughout the parable, we see a full focus on self. Covetousness and nothing pointed where it should be. On the day of his death, nothing he had or did was worth anything. Everyone at the beginning of this parable, maybe even us today, would think the man here, he was a great success. Like, look at all his stuff. Good for him. And he worked hard for that. But God says he's a fool because instead of fearing God with his or our pursuits in our drive, really our stuff, it's a drive and pursuit to gain for ourselves, storing up for ourselves. The rich man in the parable thought it was all for him and honestly thought he had to do it on his own. He said, my crops, my barns, my goods, my soul. Everything was about him. Nothing was about God. It was proved in the end that nothing was his. Even his own soul was subject to God. He didn't have any crops, barns, goods. His soul was dead. The man's problem was not in that he had treasure on earth, but that he was not rich towards God. He did not fear God with his possessions. When we come to the realization that this God of the universe, that we are to fear him, that we love him, that he's done everything for us, that he cares about us. When we see that and understand that we want to fear him with what we have, we need to acknowledge he has given us everything we have. So how are we serving and fearing him within that? Praise God that we as believers in Jesus, we we know the truth that we don't have to be anxious for anything. We do have a God who will provide. A God that is with us even in the trials and the persecution, a God worthy to be feared. We know that we don't have to be like this man. Knowing our treasure is in heaven. Knowing as we live this life, we are secure in the knowledge that we are saved, eternally secured and forever loved. As we close today, I pray that you would take time to look over these four points. Think through where you are this morning with fearing God over men, acknowledging him, knowing he provides, and from this, seeing through the lens of what we have, fearing God. I know these things aren't easy. I said a few times through this already, like these things hit home. I know how I respond to fear and I pray that daily we will desire, I will desire to properly respond to the God of the universe when the moment comes. That we will seek to build our relationship with God so that we can clearly see him, understand him, fear him, and then 
our perspective will shift on how we respond in those times. That our response would always be a fight for him and not a flight from man. Without a proper fear of God in our lives, we'll fail to stand, acknowledge, speak up, and trust. So my prayer is that we would daily, even as imperfectly as it may be, seek to fear God properly by seeking him so we can stand for him, acknowledge him, speak up for him, and in the end, fully trust him. Let's pray. Lord, love you, praise you, and thank you for this time that we have um, just to even process what it looks like to fear you. God, I pray that you would use this passage in even each of our hearts and our minds and our lives to help us shift the way that we think, acknowledging who you truly are. We love you, Jesus. Amen.